you can make a difference to one classroom, one team, one person. It could even be yourself. So this is remarkable people, not rich people, not famous people. It's a remarkable people. That's the definition. And what I learned after interviewing 200... You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Scott Belsky. It's not about ideas. It's about making ideas happen. Our guest today, Guy Kawasaki, knows how to make things happen in the business world. He's the chief evangelist at Canva and the creator of Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People podcast. Guy was also the chief evangelist at Apple and an executive fellow of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He's the best-selling author of over a dozen books, including Wise Guy, The Art of the Start 2.0, and the new one, Think Remarkable, which is now available wherever books are sold. Guy, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate Podcast. Thank you very much. I have to tell you, I share your frustration, if not just plain being pissed off with all those LinkedIn. Congratulations on your anniversary. You saw that post? Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. And like, I don't know any of these people. And I feel, am I supposed to respond to them or and they're going to think I'm some kind of jerk because I didn't respond to them? But you get dozens of them and, and they're just using the default LinkedIn notification. Yeah. For those of you who didn't hear me talk about this on my weekend conversation episode, I, I had grouped a bunch of board roles on LinkedIn and, and somehow it tagged them various companies and then told everyone it was my six-year anniversary of various companies. And then all these people wished me happy work anniversary at various companies using the auto prompt. And it just led to a discussion around <laughs> mass personalization. But yeah, some of the stuff is not helping and it just makes it too easy. And people don't realize the other side of that. So some of the people, if I go to their message history, I'll see that these are the only things I've ever had from them is once every two years. It's an auto generate and it just in totality doesn't look very good. You would think that someone at Microsoft would pick up that this is not a positive yeah. I, look, if you work with someone, maybe wishing them a work anniversary or a fifth or a tenth, but people you don't know, again, it's just, as I said, I, even after people hit it, I thought they would have noticed the message they sent and tried to make a joke or delete it or something like that. But we got better things to talk about than various anniversaries. I'm always curious. I think it's fascinating to start with childhood. I know you give credit for some of your prolific writing to a teacher you had. Is it Harold Keebles? Was that his name? Can you talk about what made such, how did he have such an impact on you? He had an impact on me. He was my high school English teacher, and he was probably the most challenging teacher I've ever had in my life, not just in high school. And he had a method of teaching writing that you wrote. And then if you broke any of the rules of grammar, he would circle that and you would have to write the mistake Again, the same sentence. He'd be fired today, just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> Red pen, he'd be out. There'd be a parent revolt. Yeah. Yeah. And he was not worried about my ego, I guess. He would circle it. You'd have to write the mistake. Then you'd have to write the rule that you broke. And then you'd have to write it again. He was just a stickler for it. cut out your passive voice. You have to have a comma with a conjunction between two independent clauses, blah, blah, blah. And really, that was a huge factor. He's long past, and I swear, he's in heaven. He's thinking, 
of all the people, of all my students, Guy has written 16 books. What happened here? What did I miss? I haven't written 16. I've written six and a few more on the way, but I feel like my English teacher would have said the same thing. I actually was going to ask you this question later. We'll jump around since that's what people with ADD do. But it ties to that because, look, a lot of people remember that there's so much pressure these days to get things right and not use red pen and otherwise. But people remember the tough but supporting coach they had or teacher or the impact. And I was going to ask you this in relation to Steve Jobs because it Steve was tough on people, but also you, you I read in his biography and you read that like, he got the most out of people. He ra- he actually raised their expectations for themselves rather than we seem to be lowering them. So was that one of the things that that he did really was make people believe that they could do more than they thought they could do? Oh my God. I feel like I'm interviewing myself. I have said that exactly, which is as I look back, the people who have had the most positive influence on me were the toughest teachers, the toughest bosses, and the toughest coaches. And so if you're a young person listening to this and you're thinking, I'm going to go find the easy boss, the easy teacher, work remotely, and I'm going to go to Bali for a month, and I'm going to fill in my role there because my boss lets me do this. There may be a day when you look back and you say, I wasted those years. I wish I had a tougher boss. I wish I had a tougher professor. And that's something you come to realize. It may take you 20 years to figure out that the toughest teacher was the best teacher. But I think you'll come to that realization. And Steve Jobs was five standard deviations beyond. I will tell you honestly that all these HR theories about You meet with people, you develop an open and transparent relationship built on trust and you focus on positivity and you focus on highlighting the good things, blah, blah, blah. Steve Jobs did none of that. Basically, he scared the shit out of me. And I saw him just rip people in public, just humiliate them. And I said to myself, guy, you are never going to be that guy. And so he basically, he managed by intimidation and I was intimidated and that drove me to do some of the best work of my life. I'm not saying I highly... Yeah, you're not encouraging that part, but it's the expectation piece that I think we're losing. And look, my daughter just called me. If she listens to this, she's going to be pissed that I'm saying this, but she called me from college before this call and is dealing with a very difficult teacher who said some irrational stuff. And this is the difference. Maybe she has parents that approach things differently, which is good for her. But I said, look, you're going to have some difficult teachers and you're going to have to learn how to deal with some irrational people in life. There's something in that. I know she doesn't want to hear that, but it's not dissimilar from what you're going to face in the real world. You can't love all your teachers. and But there's something to learn. How do you navigate difficult people, right? I think one of the best use cases for my book is parents send it to their kids saying, here, you don't listen to me. Listen to this guy. He, I mean, he was chief evangelist of Apple, he, chief evangelist of Canva. You use Canva every day. Ignore what I say. Listen to him. That's the use case. And look, they've proven there's actually a best style of parenting, which aligns to a best style of leadership, which is challenging, but supportive, right? When you get the challenging without any support, you get narcissism. And when you get support without any challenge, it's just permissive and it's not super helpful. Yeah. I hate to use sports analogies when talking about life in general and business. I know people don't like them, but they're super relevant. I agree with you. I know 50, but to team leadership stuff, it's very relevant. So we'll allow it. This is really going to date me, but 
if you look at the people who played for Vince Lombardi at the Green Bay Packers or Bobby Knight at the Indiana, University of Indiana, and from the outside, oh, they're, they're yelling at people. They're so mean. They're stomping around, throwing chairs. But the people who played for them loved them. There's a reason for that. For sure. And there, there's so many examples of that, right? I don't, they don't tend to remember the cheerleader person who they told them they were better than they were, and then they had to face reality after yeah. that. About a week ago, there was the 40th anniversary of the Macintosh. And there was about oh, 40 of us, and some of us were on a panel at the Computer History Museum. I was sitting there with all these people that I had worked with 40 years ago, and I'm thinking, and everybody was happy. We were making jokes. We we're talking about Steve in just the most positive, emotional, warm way. And I was thinking, how many times is it going to happen where 40 years after you did something, you're going to get back together with your peers and reminisce about the good time? Do you think 40 years from now, 30 Tesla employees are going to get together and say, God, it was so great working for Elon and we changed the world with our electric car and that ain't going to happen. Yeah, they're a little different. So you went to Stanford after growing up in Hawaii. And I'm curious, what was the transition like coming from Hawaii to the mainland and and an environment like Stanford? For me, it was... I got out of that airplane, Western Airlines, at SFO, and the Stanford van picks you up and takes you to the dorm. And it was like, this is the promised land. I have arrived. I just loved going to Stanford and coming to the mainland and just the broadening of my horizons. Now, in Hawaii, which is a beautiful place, but the expectations are if you're successful in Hawaii, at least this was back then. You might run a big retail store, you might run a hotel, you might be a manager at some agricultural company, but there was not something like, I'm going to be the next Hewlett, the next Packard, the next Intel. It was all different. And I came to Stanford and man, that was a religious experience. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites 
is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. And so then after Stanford, you went to law school, right? That was the plan. And then you did a pivot to business school. What was, what caused that other than not wanting more and more education? I love how you use the word pivot for that. (laughs) I went to UC Davis Law School for about two weeks. My father was a state senator, never gone to college. So it was his dream that I would go to college. Then I would get a law degree and maybe follow in his footsteps But I went to law school for two weeks and I just hated it. I just, I I freely admit, I was totally intimidated. I guess my whole life is a story of intimidation. You wouldn't figure that from the outside looking in. I was totally intimidated by law school. I I was just miserable, so I quit. And with hindsight, that was one of the smartest things I did because most people practice law for 20 years and then they figure out they hate it. They still, or they hated it the whole way, but it paid really well. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to be like a character in suits. It's a good show though. I don't know. Harvey's, Harvey Harvey seems like he has a good life. (laughs) I don't know. He has a complicated life. Did you go right from business school to Apple? I went from business school Well, while I was at business school at UCLA, it was a a four-day-a-week program. And I come from a lower middle-income family, so it's not like I was a trust fund baby and driving a Lamborghini in (laughs) school. So I had to go to work. Worked for a jewelry manufacturer, believe it or not, in downtown LA. And so after I got my MBA, I went to a jewelry manufacturing company. My friends are going to Wells Fargo and Anderson and out of Goldman Sachs, whatever. But I went to a small family jewelry manufacturing company. And believe it or not, in the famous words of Steve Jobs, that you have to connect the dots looking backwards. The jewelry business, we sold to retailers. And that is a very difficult thing. This is hand-to-hand combat. This is not, oh, go to the homepage and figure out A versus B, blue versus green, not that kind of selling. This was you wait in the lobby with your samples for hours and you pray you get a meeting with Tiffany. Okay, that's the nature of retail selling. And so I had to learn how to sell, like really sell. That has helped me for the rest of my life. In particular, Macintosh evangelism. I learned how to evangelize selling jewelry. Yeah, evangelism. So when you came to Apple, you had to fight hard for that. You, you, What was your initial role and how did you end up at, at Apple? I know you took off the chief evangelist title, but is that where you started or did you start in a different area? Well, okay. Full disclosure. So I fell in love with computing. I fell in love with computing because I got an Apple II. And back then, the state of the art was an IBM Selectric typewriter with a white correctable tape ball. So that was word processing. And then to come from us, IBM Selectric typewriter to Apple II with a word processor, it was a religious experience again. And so I loved Apple II. And my friend from Stanford had gone to work for the Macintosh division. 
He recruited me. So the, truly, the only reason why I got hired at Apple was nepotism. And it, it happens that I did well in, in that role because of the sales training and jewelry. Yeah, I'm living proof of nepotism can work. So I know you were one of the original, I think, Apple employees. I'll say that again. <laughs> you were one of the Apple employees originally responsible for marketing the Macintosh in 1984. So that must have been, that's a dream job from an evangelist standpoint. So what was the biggest challenge in, in something that that's new and different? And then what was the biggest win? Because I have to like, again, you're, this is a, people, I always hear people say it's better to sell painkillers than vitamins. People know they need painkillers. This was like really new for people. I probably couldn't even imagine what the hell do I do with a personal computer? I've got a typewriter. It's great. Why do I need this for thousands of dollars? The pain that Macintosh relieved or alleviated was the pain of user interface that people could not use MS-DOS and people could not use things that were not a metaphor, a graphical user interface. So that's the pain we solved. I wouldn't call Macintosh a supplement back then or a vitamin. It truly was a painkiller and it enabled people to do things that they always wanted to do. And then it went beyond that and it enabled people to do things they never could have imagined. Like Oregon Trail. If you had said to somebody in the mid 80s, you could have a word processing document with multiple fonts and you can put a little graphic there and multiple sizes and multiple styles. Without being an artist, you could use this thing called Mac Paint and make graphics. They would have looked at you like you're nuts because they're coming from an Apple II using... This is hard for people who have these functions, grew up with these functions today to understand actually where it was. Yeah. It's very hard to explain to someone how limited graphics was. That's an oxymoron. There was no graphics back then. So again, tell me about the campaign a little bit and working on that. What was a big win and what was much harder than you thought it would be? Oh God. The big win was that to, to a significant but small percentage of people, they absolutely loved Macintosh. It was like a magic thing, right? It was, it was a religion. That's the good news. The bad news was in Jeffrey Moore terminology, it was easy to get the pioneers and the early adopters. It was very hard to get to Main Street. And so Macintosh was introduced in 84, but by 87, 88, 89, the company was in trouble. This is all the whole Steve Jobs comes and goes, gets fired and all that because we could not make the transition to Main Street. Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey Moore is the key. <laughs> so what did help? Was it price or was it just people weren't, the evangelists were willing to pay that price and other people weren't? And, or, and so what had to happen? Did price have to come down or what eventually broke it into the mainstream? A lot of it is that for a long time, there was no software. Thank you, God. That was my challenge. So finally, you know, when you get your software together, and then Steve Jobs came back and he introduced the IMAX, the colorful ones, the ones that were like blueberry and cherry and tangerine. And there was the Think Different advertising campaign, which celebrated independent thinking. 
all of that sort of worked together. And then wasn't that also when he did the deal with Microsoft for Office? Because that was, yeah. Yeah, he did that deal for Microsoft and Microsoft wanted to avoid legal issues. So they paid. But if for people who are listening to this and saying, what the hell are they talking about? I think a very good analogy that you're seeing today is Tesla with the electric car. In a sense, they got the first early adopters, right? The people in Silicon Valley jumping on this platform. But it's not that easy to get electric cars into mainstream. And it, like, like we had this problem with software and all that. But I think today, even today, if you don't own your house and you cannot put a charger at your house, it is a major pain in the ass to try to be all electric. And Tesla has gotten the early adopters, but getting to Main Street where everybody buys a Ford 150 Lightning instead of Ford 150 internal combustion, that ain't so easy. So I guess the range anxiety is probably similar to the software availability. And maybe Elon took a page out of that playbook because he's opened up his charger protocol like it was uh, again similar whether it was you know vhs betamax or, or apple he's opened up the charging protocol so that everyone can go onto it because if you had to choose between one or two chargers that would be harder and yeah it does seem like after charging ford for a couple of years the early adopters have all bought their electric vehicles and now the average person is a little worried about performance and range anxiety and cold weather and all these things. And you cannot blame them. And the similar case for Macintosh was, if I buy a Macintosh, will the file format work with my Windows compatriots? Am I going to be stuck in this corner where only Macs can talk to Mac? It was a different floppy drive. Now, this goes back. People are like, what the hell is a floppy drive? It was different floppy drive, different software, right? So you were, am I going to get stuck? A lot of people bought some Betamax, you know, players that some expensive ones that ended up being pretty, pretty worthless. So I do think customers, when there are these kind of dual standards and it seems like it could be winner take all, they, they get a little nervous. Yeah. I have to say though, Tesla has opened up their charging system or at least at the physical level, the same connector. But with Elon, you just never know. Like next year he may say, oh yeah, we're plug compatible, but only Teslas can charge at Tesla charging stations because We've noticed that was a crucial selling point. But now that everybody thinks they can use our infrastructure, they're buying other electric cars. So starting next week, you got to own a Tesla to use the Tesla infrastructure. Is this any different than telling the landlord at Twitter headquarters, we're not paying rent anymore? That's the kind of guy you're getting in bed with, right? So you see a real difference between Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. Okay, I got to say that... Compare and contrast, because you're in a good position to do that. Up to about two years ago, I would have said that Elon Musk is the closest thing there is to a Steve Jobs. And in fact, I would even go even further, because Steve revolutionized personal computings and phones, right? But you could make the case that Elon, he changed the automotive business, maybe the tunneling under cities, maybe solar panels... Traveling to space, colonizing satellite, yeah. You stuff just goes and then embedding the chip in your head. Neuralink, yeah. Elon has arguably done more things, but wow, I don't the last thing in the world I would do is have 
Elon Musk put a chip in my head. <laughs> so you don't think, you said before, you don't think in 30, 40 years, some of his top lieutenants will be getting together and talking about what, how great it was to work for Elon. You think there's a difference? I think so. I w- it's hard to imagine that. I think a lot of it is because he has gone so political and we're going to celebrate. Oh yeah. We got on board with this racist. Yeah. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Do you think Steve Jobs is more predictable? Oh, Steve Jobs being predictable is... In a macro sense, not a micro sense, but yeah. (laughs) That is interesting. He did stay out of... And I guess, look, it's a different time and people are more into Twitter and politics, but I think Steve was more like Bill Belichick, right? He just stayed in his world and in his craft. And he dominated it. But I could tell you something that this is back in the mid 80s. And if you looked at Steve's direct reports in the division, half of them were women. I could tell you something. Steve did not care about your gender, sexual orientation, religion, skin color, anything like that. All he wanted to know was, are you great or are you shit? Nothing else mattered to him. And if you were great, it doesn't, didn't matter your gender and all that kind of stuff. But if you were shit. <laughs> Actually, well, let me ask you this question first. Now flip to that. Thinking back to your time at Apple, like how did the culture and the vision contribute to all the innovative products that have come out of Apple? Because that has to come from the culture, right? Yes. It's Steve. He had very high standards in user interface and functionality and all that. So out of fear, (laughs) we embraced those high standards and it became part of us. And I think that's in the DNA of Apple to this day, that when Apple makes great products, it does well when it doesn't. So that is a... I think a quality that is, it's just passed on from the CEO. And I don't think you could kill it if you tried. And I'm friends with Wozniak, so I know how much he cares about user interface and quality and all that too. That's just in their DNA. 
Yeah. So the UI, right. I guess, I guess that is the common thread throughout all Apple products, right. Is really the UI focus. And then, yeah. And I'm thinking back to Tesla, like it used to be the battery, but it's not really the battery anymore because they're not actually having leap and bound improvement on battery. So I, I do wonder again, if what it is that What's the singular focus there that they were driving? Because I think people have caught up on the battery side. I'm not sure anyone ever caught up to Apple on the UI side. And what's interesting to me is, in a sense, Apple and Steve, they put the playbook out front, right? You make something that's beautiful and functional, and you don't have to be a rocket science to figure it out. Why didn't everybody copy that? Why is there... I don't know if you use a digital camera, but... You show me a digital camera with a user interface that's even close to the intuitiveness of Apple's products. Why is it so hard to, you want to format your SD card? It's in the 16th menu on the 17th level. I don't understand that. Yeah. And it's funny until we just started talking about this, I, ne- I never thought about that. But right when, Tesla's first came out, 300 miles or whatever range, like for a battery car, that was revolutionary. And we heard that he locked up all the batteries and focused on the batteries. And that was really the focus. And it doesn't seem... So if that was the focus, then they should be constantly the range leader, right? Every year they have a new range and people are not keeping up. 10 years later, the ranges on some of these are not really improved. So it is interesting. I've always wondered too, that when everyone has a Tesla, it's like having and having a Toyota Corolla. Does it become a little, oh, I don't want the Toyota Corolla. Everyone has one. So I'm not, I'm, yeah, if you're, obviously they have the most chargers right now, right? That, that sort of, but I'm not sure that's a sustainable competitive advantage because it's electricity. Like it's not, and by the way, they're cutting the margins on their car. They're brought back to the stockman killed. And people are looking at the charging network. I'm like, owning a bunch of electric chargers is not a super sexy, sustainable competitive advantage because that will be those will be ubiquitous in two to three years. But they still sell a hell of a lot. Of- no, it's a great car and taking nothing away from it. It is interesting. As you point out, the thing that Apple has just continued to zero in on that was in the culture. I'm not sure I could point a similar thing to Tesla. Okay, so all of the things you just mentioned are business decisions, right? And it's competitive analysis on batteries and all that. But I'm telling you, like, I will never buy a Tesla because of Elon. And I know he's the cause that it's such a great car. All the other baggage that comes with him, I will never buy a Tesla. Yeah, there's an unpredictability. Look, there's a lot of stuff coming out, all these accidents with the autopilot and stuff being buried, and it's not super transparent. Hope you don't drive a Tesla. I, I don't drive, te- no, don't drive a Tesla. And there've been some things, again, not that I wouldn't, but I'm, yeah, it's hard to support some of the things that have happened in the last couple of years. So when did you officially, actually, let me go back to, I would, because you've had this job. If you're the chief evangelist at, Tesla, or you can be at Rivian, whichever one you want. Because to me, they're the sort of, I think they're the best kind of next chance. What would you focus on to get more people comfortable with electric cars? Now that we're probably, again, we're through the early adopters and having problems with the mainstream. Stepping back for a second, the key to evangelism is not the person's personality or can he shuck and jive. The key to evangelism is a great product. And because it's easy to evangelize a great product and it's very hard to evangelize shit. And so I would focus on making the car as great a product as I can. And 
I know people who own Teslas and they just love them. Maybe that problem is solved and Tesla will see now succeed despite the weirdness of Elon. So it's hard to be an evangelist of a crappy product. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I have to say, I look at the Cybertruck. It's the most polarizing car ever. You couldn't pay me to drive that car. You could. I would not be seen in that car. That car (laughs) is so ugly. It just... It's going to cost a fortune to insure. It's all stainless steel. It doesn't... Yeah. If you're trying to get everyone to love something, it seems pretty hard. As a strategy, this seems like the first thing that's really polarizing. Most of us can look at a Tesla and say that's a nice looking car, right? The Cybertruck is... It's out there. You'd have a hard time evangelizing that. How does this have to do with being remarkable? It has a lot to do with being remarkable, actually. Actually, that's where we're going next. So I'm curious, as you said before, you be, dis, despite all odds, you become a prolific writer. What was the prompt to write your first book? The prompt to write my first book was that I was in a job where, believe it or not, even though I was, I really didn't have the freedom to do what I wanted to do with the company. It's a long story. And so the Macintosh way, which was my first book, is a cathartic effort that I wanted to write about how business could be done, right thing, right way. And so I wrote that book for catharsis, and I thought that was the first and last book I've, I'd ever write. And here we are, 16 books later. I don't know what happened. One of your first books outside the tech world was Rules for Revolutionaries. And one of the rules in there is to create revolutionary products and services. You have to create like a god. What, explain what you mean by that. I'm sure that's a little bit of a, maybe a polarizing statement for some. Yeah, I found this great quote by... Constantine Brancusi, the sculptor, like create like a god, command like a king, work like a slave. I'm not sure Nikki Haley would understand that quote. But anyway, so what I'm trying to say is that I think great design is an inspiration. It's It comes from vision and passion and luck. And this is where Steve Jobs is just way ahead of everybody else. And I think it's a gift And it's not necessarily just doing focus groups and doing A-B testing. I have great appreciation for artists. I think it's an art. And if it's an art, does that mean it has a high degree of subjectivity? Again, in this example of the cyber truck, right? You could argue trying to, you know, what somehow, again, trying to the difference of something that is beautiful, new, and different that has mass appeal versus that is polarizing? Do you think sometimes people say to love something, people have to hate it? Do you think other people need to hate it? Do you think that's true? Or the real successful innovation comes from figuring out what it is that most people would gravitate around? I'm in a school of you should create what you find beautiful, what you find useful, what you want to use. Just pray that you're not the only nutcase that feels this way. Now, it may be that Elon Musk loves the Cybertruck and thinks it's great. And God bless him. He's he's worth more than I am. What do I know? But I am of that school that it's an art. And I've come to know artists and they're listening to a different voice, especially the great ones. That may be why very they're not thinking about commercial ability of what they're doing. They're just creating. But I'm curious, did Steve Jobs, did he just go for perfection on these things? Or did he talk about whether people would buy it or whether they'd be interested? I think that may be a false dichotomy. He was trying to do both and that 
he thought that he could make something beautiful and people would love it. It's not an or. But he didn't do focus groups or customer research. He was going on his his intuition there. Yeah. The focus group for Steve Jobs is the fact that his right and left hemispheres of his brain were connected. <laughs> I think focus groups have a legitimate use for evolving a product, not for starting a revolution. If you went to an Apple II user or an MS-DOS user and said, what would you like in your next computer? They would say, better, faster, cheaper. Nobody would say, oh, give me this one-button mouse with icons that simulate trash cans and folders. It's just, it's not in their vocabulary to express that. It takes somebody who's going to... They wouldn't have said an iPod. No. They wouldn't have said an iPhone. Yeah. And they sure as hell would not say, give me a car that's made out of stainless steel. That's bullet. I just got the insurance quote for my new electric vehicle, and I was blown away. I can only imagine what that thing costs to insure when people get into it. <laughs> what kind of electric car did you buy? I got a Rivian. Oh, you know what? Gotta say, Rivians are beautiful. Do you have the truck or the van or the truck? I was a little worried about it. it it's new. People, first of all, people love it that I know have it. But I actually listened to his podcast on how I built this, and he's an impressive guy. And I just think the culture of that company is very different. It actually, he's not as crazy as Steve Jobs was, but it reminds me a little more of, of sort of an Apple than it. he's been working on this since he was 15 years old and it's a vision and it's something he wants to change. And there's, it's been a low drama company, which is good. I think the industrial design of Rivian is straight. I just love the two little headlights. It's polarizing a little bit, but it works. When you see one, it's clearly identified. Yeah. It's interesting. I can, I can see that kind of a mile away, but now there's a lot more of them. So you're seeing it more often. A Rivian truck does not scream, look at me. That's what a cyber truck is screaming. Look at me. <laughs> exactly. No, it's modern looking. It's a little more of the traditional. I think it's an evolution, not a revolution, I'd probably say. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So let's talk about some of your latest work, specifically your podcast, Remarkable People, and your new book, which is just out, Think Remarkable. So I'm curious, the podcast came first. So what was the genesis of starting that? There's two versions to this. <laughs> you can tell me the better one. Yeah, I won't know the other one. The truthful one is my previous book was called Wise Guy. And I was on the book tour talking to podcasts. So one day I asked this podcaster, so what's your business model? He says, I sell ads. I said, well, how many ads do you sell? He says, I sell one at the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. I said, well, how much do you make for those ads? He goes, 15000 for the first one. And no, he said, 20 for the first one, 15 for the one. It's a big podcast, yeah. And 10 at the end. So I'm adding that up. I say, so you're telling me you make 40 or 50,000 bucks per episode times 52 episodes. I said, well, actually, guy, I do more than 52 episodes. So I'm saying, so you make it two and a half to three million bucks a year. He says, yeah. I said, why am I writing books? I got to do a podcast. 
So that's one version. There's not much money in books, which look, you could, Tim Ferriss figured this out. You notice he hasn't written a book in quite a few years. Yeah. And you know what? As a book writer, you work on this for a year and a half. The moment it comes out, you, you have regrets. Hopefully you pay back the advance. You get royalties that exceed the advance. Whereas a podcast, you Every week, you can do something different. You can fix it immediately. You can keep selling sponsorships 52 times a year. But so now you're asking, so why would you write a book, Guy? I have done 200 podcasts, and the overlap of your guests and mine are really high, like Angela Duckworth and Gretchen Rubin and Daniel Pink. We have had the same kind of guests. But I thought that I've interviewed very remarkable people like those three I just mentioned, plus people like Jane Goodall, Wozniak, Katie Milkman, Stephen Wolfram. My, I have more MacArthur Fellows than you. And I said, there's so much wisdom and goodness in what they've said. But for people to get them, they'd have to listen to 200 hours. So I decided I, w- I should take all these lessons and put my filter on top because It takes someone to filter all these interviews to get the real nuggets, right? Even in in like in this hour of listening to me, there's only going to be three or four nuggets. And imagine if Robert just wrote a book. These are the three main lessons you can learn from God. That's what AI is for, right? From the lesson. So this is a synthesis of all the best remarkable people that you've talked to. Basically. And so this is not the guy way. This is the way of 200 people with Guy's filter on top. So without giving away the book, what is the synthesis of the synthesis that you can give us some of the cliff notes on? What did you discover about, first of all, how would you define remarkable? And then what have you found about people who are remarkable? So I would define remarkable as people who have made a difference. They've made a difference by making the world a better place. Now, This immediately sets off the next question, which is, does that mean I have to be a Steve Jobs or Jane Goodall to be remarkable? And the answer to that is no, that you can make a difference to one classroom, one team, one person. It could even be yourself. So this is remarkable people, not rich people, not famous people. It's remarkable people. That's the definition And what I learned after interviewing 200 of them is it basically comes down to three phases. It's growth. This is the work of Carol Dweck, the growth mindset. There's grit. This is the work of Angela Duckworth, who you recently had. And finally, there's grace, which is at the end of your career, I think remarkable people come to understand that it's about paying back. And helping the next generation. It's not just reaping. And which part are most people missing? Is it that last part? That that would seem like the part where people fall off from. (laughs) In a sense, it's like any kind of sales funnel, right? So everybody enters the top saying, yeah, I want to be remarkable. I want to make a difference. And then people fall off because they don't have the growth mindset. And even if you had the growth mindset, you have to work your ass off. So then you have to have the grit mindset. So you've got growth and grit. You're on a good path. But then to truly be remarkable, you have to have grace and graciousness. Did Steve Jobs have grace and graciousness? 
In his own unique way, yes. You would not say he's Jane Goodall graciousness. <laughs> but I'm detecting that's what you feel that Elon Musk does not have at all. Now that you put those two together, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And if you look at, think of someone like Jimmy Carter, right? So that's grace. That's graciousness. It's not about him anymore. Or obviously he's very old now, but that's the kind of... It's focusing on, right. It's not about you. It's what comes after. It's the next generation. Yeah. I don't get the sense that again, and, and Elon, look, he's brilliant. And I, when you talk about it, I think people confuse. And I think that's why you're seeing some of the struggles at Twitter. I, he's brilliant around product and he sees things in the future and he brings them in. But I, yeah, I'm not sure these are organizations that you want to work at, <laughs> even though you'll do some incredible things. So it's interesting, as you said, and I'm not sure he's focused on creating the next group of leaders or what comes next or otherwise. I think he's he's focused on what he wants to do now. I've I, You must have seen the famous interview of, of Linda of is it Yaccarino, Vaccarino, or whatever? I've seen a few, yeah. They require a lot of cognitive dissonance sometimes, I think. <laughs> you can't watch her in an interview and say, my God, that's the A team, right? Yeah, he's put her in some uncomfortable situations. Let's go to that middle one. We talked about, we both interviewed Angela Duckworth, big fan of her work on Grit. So what's your thought on how someone develops Grit, particularly if they've had a pretty kind of easy life by general standards? I think in a sense, you don't just wake up and say, tomorrow, I'm going to be gritty. You have to come to the realization that it is a necessary sacrifice. And Angela's father may have hammered that into her, maybe too much. <laughs> yeah. I still go back to when she said, I want to be in education. I don't want to be in. And he said he was really disturbed because he's a cultural cliche dad. You could be a lawyer, doctor, or whatever the third thing was. What? Oh, engineer. Yeah, probably. And so he came back, she said, like a day later, and he's like, I thought about it. Like, if you want to go into secretary into education, you should be the secretary of education because that's the highest thing that he could find in that. And she's like, yeah, it's not what I want to do. What I want to do. That is so Asian. I'm Asian, so I can say that. You cannot say that. I cannot say that. So I let you say it. Yeah. I'll tell you an Angela Duckworth story that I interviewed him, her a few months ago for second time. And she also explained the effect of her father and his high standards, et cetera, et cetera. But then she said, you know what? My mother is now 89. And as I got older, I understood more that she's just as remarkable as him because she made this sacrifice to come from a Taiwan or China, knowing nobody, not speaking English, coming to America to have a better life. And she made all these sacrifices for all her children. And she like deprioritized her own desires to be an artist. But now that we're all grown and she had, she doesn't have to take care of my father anymore. She's blossoming as an artist at 89. She tells this great story that she's in a assisted living facility and she went to the manager of this and said, I want another room. And he said, what, what's wrong with the room you have? And she said, nothing. I'm going to keep that. I want a second room to be my art studio. 89. That's one of the best stories I heard on my podcast. Did she get it? Yes. What's next for Guy Kawasaki? Any projects or initiatives you're particularly excited about right now? <laughs> Other than launching a book, which is a lot of work. 
postpartum <laughs> depression. Again, you've written a lot more books. I tell everyone it's not the writing the book. It's the launching of the book that is just exhausting. Yeah. People think, as you say, that writing the book is hard. It's the marketing of the book. Yeah. It's the birthing of the book that is. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's Yeah. People don't want to talk to your publicist. They want to talk to you. And so you do 100 of these things and you have to call in the favors. And yeah, it's, the marketing of it is... I, for sure, more work than the writing of the book. And you're a marketer, right? So for a lot of people who aren't marketers, then that's got to be even harder. I got to tell you, and then you, you look at the books that are outselling your book and you can say, how is this possible? How is this possible? You got to offend someone. Well, a lot of those books are written to red meat to one crowd or another did not appeal to a broad swath. But Robert, do you ever say to yourself, how is it I don't know how many downloads you get of your podcast, but do you ever say to yourself, how is it that Joe Rogan gets 6 million downloads? <laughs> yeah, I just saw, was it he just signed a $250 million deal this week, I think? It's crazy. Yeah. Do you get $250 million for your podcast? Because I don't. I did not. I'm, wor I'm working on it. I'll just take a fraction of that. I take a... <laughs> look, it just proves, and I think it's a good thing for parents and kids. And that's why I always say to my, whatever you want to do, if you're the best at it, there's a market for that. Being the best at whatever you do, there's a market for that. I, rather than funneling everyone into a narrow set of choices by certain parental pressures that don't have much... You can make a good living. They don't have much differentiation. You're talking to the guy that dropped out of law school. Okay? So, to go to business school. So that wasn't horrible. But I have a slightly different interpretation of what you said. So lots of people think that the magic... Venn diagram is you take what you like to do, what you're good at doing, and what you can make money at. And when you find the intersection, that's what you should do. Okay. I have a very different theory, more influenced by Mark Maron. Is that Mark? Or you, do I have Mark Maron? Who wrote the subtle art of not? Mark Manson, I think, right? Yeah, Mark Manson. Gee, I, you were close. That's within the standard deviation. Did Obama in the garage, right? So I love. Mark told me, guy, you know what? When you are doing something that everybody else considers a shit sandwich, but you love it, you found what you love to do. For podcasting, it's editing the podcast. That's a shit sandwich, but I love to do that. And so my interpretation is not that you find this magic intersection of what you're good at, what you like to do, and what you can make money. The real test is... If you are doing something that you might not be so good at yet, that you cannot make money, but you will still do it, that's when you found something. All right. Last question for you. And this can be singular, repeated, and or professional or personal or professional. So it's multivariant. But what's a mistake that you've made in your life or career that you learned the most from? You're talking to a guy who quit Apple twice and turned down Steve once. <laughs> that's a few tens of millions right there. Okay, this is, I cannot look back on my life and say, guy, you really blew it. Yes, I left a lot of money on the table quitting Apple, but I haven't. And I, see, I don't want people to think, oh, guy thinks he did everything right. I'm not saying that, but. No regrets, right? Yeah, this is a Daniel Pink theory, right? That the regret you'll most likely have in life is not that you quit Apple when you should have stayed the regrets that's most likely is 
you didn't take a chance. You didn't go for it. And more or less, whenever I had the chance to start a company or podcast or write a book, I went for it. Not that they were all successful, but I did go for it. And so I don't have that kind of regrets. And I also think that at the end of your life, you are the sum total of all your experiences, good or bad. I mean, I'm not saying, oh, God, I I wish I had some debilitating disease or something so I could have grown more. But I think you are what you are and you have that's part of being graceful. And my father, when I was in high school, he said, son, there's this thing called noblesse oblige, which is the obligations of the people who have been fortunate with money or education or whatever. When you're that fortunate, you have a moral obligation. I have changed that term. I'm inventing a new term. It's called success oblige. So when you are successful, you have a moral obligation to help others. And if you do that, you're not going to look back on your life with regrets. That goes to part of your remarkable formula as well. That's the grace. (laughs) Guy, how can people learn more about you and your work and the new book? If you just search Guy Kawasaki, you'll come to GuyKawasaki.com. You can go to ThinkRemarkable.com. You can go to RemarkablePeople.com. I'm very good at buying domains. So if you know how to use Google, then you should be able to find Guy. (laughs) Yeah. If you cannot find me, something's wrong with you. And there's one more power tip I'll give you. So I love AI. I think AI is the biggest deal maybe ever. And so I created with a company, Kawasaki GPT, believe it or not. And Kawasaki GPT is built on chat GPT, but the data set is all my writings and all my transcripts. So seriously, you can go to Kawasaki GPT and ask it questions and it will answer you better than I could in person. If you want to tap Guy's brain, go to Kawasaki GPT. That's awesome. I will check that out for sure. And I'm sure that's going to be something coming in the future. And it'll be very interesting to, to try to determine whether you said something or whether AI that's been trained on your material said it at some point. It's even better because it has 200 transcripts in it. So if you were to ask, how do you embrace a growth mindset or a grit mindset? There'll be an answer and it's going to cite where Angela Duckworth and Carol Dweck said that. That's very cool. All right, Guy, thank you for joining us today. You've had a huge impact on the world through your writing and your business evangelism. So it's great to talk to you. Congratulations on your anniversary for your six companies. (laughs) For various companies. Yes. I had a lot of tenant friends texting me over the weekend after they read that post, thinking they were all very funny, congratulating me on my anniversary. (laughs) Thank you very much. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in today to the Elevate podcast. We'll include links to Guy and Think Remarkable book on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to follow the show to be notified about new episodes and have them downloaded automatically to listen. If you're an Apple podcast, simply hit on the follow or the show overview page or the three little dots on the upper right. If you're in an individual episode and then hit follow, you can also follow the show on CastBox, Spotify, Pandora, or your favorite podcast player. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.